1: Welcome to episode 10 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I'm a filmmaker and stuff. <laughs> it's very impassioned as usual. Yeah. And uh, delighted to be joined on the Skype again. Uh, another guest this week. Uh, you know her best from her work as a producer, most recently on the opening film of Fright Fest 2018, Jen Wexler's The Ranger, Heather Buckley. Thanks very much for joining us.
2: Hey, guys. Hi, Hi
1: Heather. Uh, and uh, congratulations on the, the Fright Fest announcement
0: from last week.
2: Thank you. I feel uh, I feel so honoured, and so does my, uh, my team and my director, Jen Wexler. We're just beyond also that it's, uh, the, it's the opening night film and then the closing night film is No Way's Climax it's crazy <laughs> it's, it's crazy which I cannot even as a, as a journalist back in the day I think he was my most covered director when I would write for Dread Central and Fangoria so I believe I've interviewed him three times and covered most of his uh, filmography
0: wow he's quite he's, uh,
1: he's an interesting character
2: I would agree with that assessment
1: <laughs> <laughs> he is um, right well Digging we'll dig the Ranger in a little bit but um first things first you've uh brought to the table tonight uh william peter blatty's 1980 film the ninth configuration so uh do you want to take us a minute just to uh outline why you chose it tonight
2: when i was uh when i was a young girl a lot i think a lot of people maybe in the states don't know about you guys but would look at different tomes to figure out what movies to watch and i think the the most frequently cited is the psychotronic film guide for me i use fans of the movie guide to research heavily what i would go into the video store and get and because of its cast alone as a 14 year old girl i wanted to watch nine configuration so i watched it on vhs and because of my interest in philosophy being someone who talks a lot and a host of character actors in the film I just love Ninth Configuration. A lot of folks have heard about it. Most folks have never watched it. I think people have heard about it now, maybe post uh, Shutter Island coming out. But I think we need to talk about Ninth Configuration. I'm actually working on uh, developing a new film. And and when I read the script, I said, you guys have to watch Ninth Configuration because it's an incredible example of uh, Socratic debate in film or rhetorical debate. Also, William Peter Blatty's writing is hysterical. It is in <laughs> Legion, which became Exorcist Three, and Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, of which I've, which I've also read. There, there's a great rhythm in there. But this is all historically back to my love. It's like, what kind of girl loves the Dirty Dozen and Kelly's Heroes? It's like me. I like an ensemble cast of old man character actors <laughs> saying crazy dialogue for about two hours. There's nothing I would rather watch more. I think the uh, great-grandson of that sort of style is what Tarantino did. Like, a lot of these movies you could just listen to as a radio play, and you've you've absorbed a lot of why I love those films. <laughs> (laughs) Just listening to these characters, listening to what they have to say—it's great.
0: Some of the dialogue in it is amazing. And and full disclosure, the first few times I tried to watch *The Ninth Configuration*, I was just a daft asshole, really. And uh, I think the first two or three times I tried to watch it, I turned it off before the halfway point, like before it got like super, super interesting. Uh, I couldn't get over the kind of farcical elements of it, so I kind of just
1: turned it off. How how old of an Andy or young of an Andy Stewart are we talking about here? How old or young of an Andy Stewart? uh 15 okay yeah i can't kind of understand that 14
0: maybe that
2: that is interesting that we both found it at a young age because i Mm. was thinking like what kids are watching ninth configuration which Mm. would come to be their like they're one of their favorite Stacey keach films who's thinking (laughs) about Stacey keach at the age of 14 i mean those are the right people is what i'm saying but i haven't met any in my life
1: (laughs) full disclosure also um i saw this for the first time last night it's a good time to start yeah. I, it's probably not as good as age fifteen, but thirty-one is. Yeah, that's where that's where I found it. Uh, this film wasn't short of fans, mm-hmm. uh, like critically, you know, people like uh, Leonard Matlin and that were pretty into it. But at the, it was underseen at the time, which I think kind of makes it worth defending. A lot of people missed out on it and have heard about it but haven't seen it.
2: Exactly. So you need to give them an excuse, like developing a script or doing a podcast, to have them see Ninth Configuration.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> exactly. think it just
2: comes up in normal conversation. i and I've become like I show people or or new people in my life a lot of films, and I do show them Ninth Configuration, and I'm always extra still in quiet because it's like are they going to understand it? Are they going <laughs> to like it? And there's other films like that that I show people. For example, when we talk about this movie, I show them naked. I show them the ruling class I show them Ratsad, so there's this themic quality of uh, characters that are uh, super, super articulate for the entire time period. And again, and it's interesting you brought up the, the the farce element, it is in there. And I don't think we really see farces anymore in cinema as we did in like post 70s cinema. Yeah, yeah. I can think of like, maybe there's some of that element in the Coen Brothers, but it is certainly a, a tone of its time.
0: I think coming from the, the UK, uh, we're, whether we like it or not, we're so kind of exposed to weird things like the carry-on films and stuff from a really early age that you either enjoy a farce or you kind of flinch away from a farce. I've always been more of a flinch away from a farce type of guy oh
1: I'm more of a lean into a farce kind of guy Oh, well, there you go and I definitely did for the because uh, I think that the, the more farcical elements of this are kind of they're played out more heavily in the first can hour or so oh yeah yeah and um, not knowing what was coming next kind of thing I, can, I I think that it's a film you can split kind of pretty distinctly into two halves and I loved both halves equally but I wasn't prepared for where it went at all see um, Heather just before we get into this properly uh, there's something that we do this could actually this could be a really good one for this <laughs> um, we get there's one, th- uh, one thing we get guests to do every week so andy can we have 30 seconds on the clock yeah so for the benefit of anyone who is crazy enough to listen to this episode without having seen the ninth figuration this might actually be the
0: episode where it is perhaps most crucial that you see the film
1: i think so i think that's fair can you go for a 30 second synopsis
2: during the vietnam war a lot of soldiers go crazy and they have them held up in a castle In that castle, a new psychiatrist comes, and there's a bunch of lunatics that are that are there. And dealing with the lunatics, dealing with the new psychologist, and the old guard that is at the castle where everyone is that's standing is at an asylum. Everyone needs to figure out the difference between loyalty, love, God, atheism through conversations and the people who orbit the castle.
0: Oh, spot on! Right on the buzzer! Right on the nose! Nicely done, Ideal. nicely done.
1: That's one of the better ones we've had, I think. Last week's was a shambles. It was, it was a disaster. Uh,
2: that's, <laughs> that, that's also the brilliant part, if it's also shambles. That's also brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> when this kicks off, and we get into the opening credits, the first of what feels like a lot of crazy decisions in it, um, uh, Denny Brooks' San Antonio. Yeah. Uh, plays of opening credits almost in its entirety. Well, I think there's about tons of different versions of the film. Oh, it's the version I saw. Um I don't think there,
2: there are different there actually because I worked on the second site disc with David Gregory. <laughs> so if you watch the second site disc, I produced it. During the producing of the extras, I did find out like there are different cuts of it all over the world, but they would hmm. need to be scanned in. And there's the cut that I grew up with the VHS cut that I like better, the ending where What he does doesn't look deliberate. It's as if he died in battle. And I've had this discussion online with one of my favorite writers and artist, Steve Bissett. And I know that he also prefers that ending, which is more ambiguous. And both of those endings I'd love to talk about. But again, I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, they've not seen the movie. So maybe yeah. we have like a little snippet in the end when we kind of like flash, like, don't go further if you don't want to hear about the end of the film. But the end of the, those two <laughs> endings are very curious. So I have it on VHS because as a child, I would pirate all these movies, like you would find Evil Dead 2, letterbox Unrated, and then I would put my VCRs next to each other. And that's how I had my copy of Ninth Configuration for years until it came out on DVD. But the DVD has the ending I don't prefer, but Vladdy talks about why he chose that ending in the commentary. So I don't know what ending you guys have watched. And because I don't have... A all regions Blu ray player, right. though I work on so many.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know what the ending is on the ninth. I also well, don't know how the extras turned out
0: I hope they, I hope they look beautiful they're lovely quite lovely uh, okay. we'll take a moment towards the end of this to just stop and discuss the ending that I think certainly I, I watched in preparation for this and I think probably the same one that you watched Mitch yeah, if you watched so. it on Amazon
1: yeah I did so when we kind of open on the mental hospital as it were which mental hospitals I think have now featured in more than half of the films on this podcast yeah. as no, have kind of draconian mental hospital staff
0: but not to the same level <laughs> Of, Certainly not of, no. of madness that is in here. It's remarkable.
1: So the first patient and our protagonist, I think personally, is that we meet is a uh, Scott Wilson's Billy Cusshaw. Scott Wilson
0: is unbelievable in this film. Yeah, <laughs> it's a r- ridiculously strong performance from Scott Wilson. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on in his eyes; it staggers me.
2: I don't know if I, I maybe have saw this because when I was again a huge movie buff since I was very young, I think I may have seen In Cold Blood first before I saw Ninth Configuration. Okay. So I was familiar with him as an actor. And of course, I'm very happy he's gone on to great fame with Walking Dead. He was was such an iconic actor to me growing up. The performance in the film, though obsessed with Joe Spinell and though obsessed (laughs) with Jason Miller, we can get to Jason Miller as well, is Ed Flanders' performance of that dialogue. Because we have to tell the the, the listeners that the dialogue in the film, they are long complicated monologue speeches about, as I mentioned, like God, atheism, the goodness of man, that all these actors, they 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 really have to bring it. They have to be present to the material and they have to sell this very stylized dialogue and keep it grounded.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an unbelievably philosophical film at times, I think. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think that, yeah, so so much of it is almost in monologue form that everyone has to be on it. And everyone is. It's nailed across uh, the board.
2: The the monologue, the section that I think about the most when I think of, as like a horror fan and thinking about horror and thinking about someone who walks out in the world wearing a whole bunch of punk gear <laughs> is, uh, is, is Jason Miller's mo- almost monologue about Hamlet. Yeah. The idea that do you play crazy so you aren't crazy? To sort of let it out of your system, and I always think about the genre in that way. It's like, do we create crazy, gr- grizzled, maniac stuff for our own sanity? Do we play the villain for our own for our own needs? Which I believe, like uh, punk rock and sort of counterculture, is about. Yeah. So I, that is, I think, out of everything in the film, what stays with me the most is his conversation about Hamlet's madness, which. Is not really foreshadowing because it happens kind of in the middle of the film, but that piece is what that film is about. Are you insane? Or are you acting crazy in a crazy time? Because this is also, you could look at it as a exploitation film, which those type of films I'm very obsessed with. Like, uh, I mean, some of them are very sincere, but um, Vietnam films like uh, Jack Knife and Deer Hunter and Combat Shock and post veteran films. Like Taxi Driver, Rolling Thunder, the Venn diagram of where this film fits in my life—it overlaps a lot of <laughs> of things. And also for for people just wanting to pick up Ninth Configuration, it's like a lot of the cast was in Exorcist Three.
1: Yeah, <laughs> also true. Yeah, see, yeah. um, the scene you're talking about, but the uh, the Hamlet's Madness monologue. Yeah. See, um, I think that it's a really good, um, it's one of my favorite examples of how well this film juggles tone. That stop me if I'm wrong here, but uh, it's it gets to the end of that. And it's at that point that, uh, Reno, because obviously this is a discussion about Hamlet in the context of him producing Shakespearean plays exclusively starring dogs. (laughs) Um, So when he gets to the end of that, he kind of turns around and shouts at a dog being like, you see, we're doing the scene my way. And I think that like the way that it kind of pivots out of something so kind of profound and it's something that really made me laugh so much. I think is a, is a good example of one of the things that I think this film does really well.
2: Well, Blatty was a comedy writer. He did a you know shot in the dark and a lot of, a lot of films like that. And yet, he's known, I guess, within our in our genre world, as someone who made one of the uh, who, who wrote what would then go on to be the great, one of the greatest horror films of all time. But there is also an interest about the farce element, the comedy, and the laughing, screaming, and ability to deal with tone, because Legion is very close to Exorcist Three, except for except for the ending. Mm-hmm. But there is that kind of very funny dialogue in it. What was I what was I listening? I was listening to Paul Schrader's podcast. And He was talking about how he would, when he comes up with the idea for a movie, he says it out loud, and because he believes that film is part of the oral tradition rather than the written tradition. And I would argue, when I read Blatty's work, it seems like it always had that cinematic quality because it makes more sense if you're saying it out loud because of the rhythm, because how it's fun to say it.
1: I definitely see that. Yeah, I think it's like in, in a lot of in a lot of this for sure. Yeah. So, Stacey Keach in this. Oh, Stacey Keach in this is
0: superb. I mean, he he's essentially drafted in, or we're led to believe he's essentially drafted in as a psychiatrist who's maybe there to assess whether or not these inmates are in fact insane or whether they're uh, just trying to get out of battle, essentially. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. That's an oversimplification. But he
1: is astonishing. And I think he's got a difficult job to do in there as well, because I think that he has to play it pretty straight in a Mm -hmm. cast full of really big personalities. And at risk of being dwarfed at times,
0: he still manages to maintain a real steadiness that's impressive. He never gets lost in all the madness going on around him. There's this point where he's sat in in the office and uh, Scott Wilson's leaping around, throwing stuff around, and he still manages to exude an air of unwavering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A good word, unwavering. In the face of all that
2: yeah i was watching fat city yesterday which he's in and i was just trying to meditate on keach as an actor because he's everything that you've you've mentioned it's like mm-hmm. he he's sometimes the leading man though he has a, a very unique face he has a broad face he's very he's 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 very tall and then he has this grounding quality to him, but there's some, I think part of that grounding quality is that it, within his eyes or within his presence, there's a real empathy there mm-hmm. and a real grounding that it's like, you don't feel sorry for him. It's just, you can't help but to connect when you see him on screen and there's a casual style about it because it's not desperate. It's almost a, a radiant, a radiant quality. And I think that's maybe one reason because he's a sort of grounding, empathetic uh, that's so big. That empathy is so big is that you can have all the wild character actors around him.
0: His eyes come into play. Like, again, I'm talking a lot about people's eyes tonight. Like, <laughs> I've obviously been trying to work on my eye contact or something. But early on, before before we know the, the kind of truth about him, there's a moment where he kind of snaps and his eyes change so dramatically. They change in size. They change in intensity. They look like the, the blood vessels are burst in them. It's a really amazing performance.
2: Yes, he's he's sort of like a, a steady sleepwalker throughout the entire film, but again, very open and vulnerable. And then we see him. Yes, that scene is is incredible when he yells at um, at Major Groper <laughs> for his lack of kindness, for his lack of being like uh, almost like Christ in a way. And then there's I guess one scene of actual brutality, but I believe it's it's more physical. And then there's a great scene of uh, agony during the flashback, as yeah. sort of where he goes emotionally.
1: Yeah, I think that I'm uh, because he's he's so unwavering the whole way through as the tone of the film changes around changes around him. I think that's really interesting because it works I think it works equally well in both halves. Like a lot of my favorite stuff in this is just kind of a uh, cut on Kane, uh, Scott Wilson, as uh, Stacy Keats, just kind of their one on ones. Are a lot of the kind of a lot of the things that I really enjoy. But in the first half, you've got. You know when he's uh, when he's reading his file aloud, and he's talking about the episode he had before he was going to go to space where he had the outburst where he said that going to the moon was impolite uncouth and at any rate bad for his skin <laughs> and that's kind of thing which I think that's it, that all in the delivery and that's really funny but then later on he's bit like he's playing it the same way for obviously kind of conversations that are a lot more profound have a lot more depth and um, I think yeah I think because uh, there's so much kind of like there's so many big like I said there's so many big personas and so many big performances in the film it's kind of easy to overlook how much of a backbone he is to the whole thing
2: I would agree that that his unwavering ability which is 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 a- a through line throughout this film it also it makes him feel like because it's an ensemble film but it also makes him feel like the lead at the same time even though the, the narrative the narrative is his story and about his and about his story without Keach Nicole Williamson, I believe, was going to
0: play Keech's
2: role and then he got kicked out of the country.
0: Was it Michael Moriarty? There was, I
2: know Nicole Williamson was supposed to work on Nine Configuration. Talking to some of the actors at some of the cons about this, like uh, like uh, Atkins and things like that, it's like all these huh. guys were like rowdy New York City actors that they locked up like in this Eastern European castle for a very <laughs> long time and yeah. it drove them insane and some of them would start fights and all of them would go to the bars and there is this story that I was trying to remember of Nicole Williamson was a part of this cast but he was kicked out of the country for just being Nicole Williamson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I imagine it wasn't your traditional film set and your traditional shoot I imagine it wasn't what a lot of these guys had done before it feels very much like they would have been questioning what the fuck they were doing there at points um I feel that it was maybe a little bit unprofessional at times from Blatty himself.
2: Yes. Uh, I see what you mean is um, Michael Moriarty was going to play Cutshaw, ah, which is right. very okay. interesting, and it was Nicole Williamson who was going to play Kane. Which Because then, then you would see Nicole Williamson in the cutscene from Exorcist 3. Because I think you but, can't, like all us as genre fans, you cannot talk about Ninth Configuration without
0: Exorcist 3. They're closer uh, in tone and, and mood than they certainly are to The Exorcist.
2: Well, the idea that you would remove Nicole Williamson from Ninth Configuration, but when you have to like do reshoots of Exorcist Three, you add him.
0: <laughs>
2: Years later, that's fascinating. He was fated to be directed by William Peter Blatty, yeah, well, because it so. was reshoots, not William Peter Blatty.
1: It's pretty. Early, it's well, it's relatively early on in the film that uh, you see a conversation between uh, Reno and Cutshaw where uh, Reno kind of posits the idea that Kane might be insane himself. Which, honestly, up to that point and shortly after was not something I'd entertained at all. I think a, a lot of where this goes I didn't see at all.
0: That's great to me that we're, we're sitting here, obviously myself and Heather have seen it, and for you to now just be discovering it and to not have, up until less than 24 hours ago, you yep. had no idea where this film was going. I really enjoy
1: that. I'm glad because I I like I'm glad that there's an upside to me being so poorly educated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's
2: fun because, uh, again, like I brought this film up a lot and people who have seen this film and they love this film, it's almost like telling people that your favorite band is the Pixies, if you know what I mean. Okay. yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. It really, it really is. It's like it's a super B side. It's out there in the world. Well, as I mentioned before, when Shutter Island came out, because it's very si- similar, and what it's trying to go for is the most time in pop culture I've ever heard mentioned of Ninth Configuration.
1: <laughs> I don't know where to jump ahead to. <laughs> well,
2: I think the, the well, I think the lunatics running the asylum is is kind of a is kind of a trope. And during that time period, because I mentioned my 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 love of the ruling class there was that strain in cinema that that had a lot of uh, psychiatry in it or psychiatry as a sort of narrative pivot in film that you may not see a lot anymore maybe the last big one i can think it was like silence of the lands or there it didn't seem like psychiatry as a way to explore the human condition right other than just someone who is a who is a psychologist that, I think that was big, big big in the day
0: that's I mean it's something that runs through all of Blatty's stuff even take away just if you focus on his writing it's something that's through his, his whole writing it's something he was clearly pretty impassioned about
1: yeah and I, and I think yes. when I think when it, when the film reaches that point I think that that kind of is roughly kind of laying in the sand for where the tone of the film starts to shift so
0: did you feel that
2: you learned anything from your from your viewing of it for the first time did about I the human race are you interested in incredibly mm. uh, in philosophical films like this I mean so you've watched like, like I mentioned like Mike Lee's Naked and things like that
1: yeah I mean I think the conversation that I enjoyed the most I think was possibly the exchange between Kutcher and Kane about human sacrifice as the best demonstration of kind of human good and i think that that was probably that that was something that i hadn't considered and i would say that that was the thing that i was still thinking about when i went to bed after i'd stopped watching the Mm -hmm. film i would say that was that was of the kind of philosophical strands in there i think that was the one that i took the most away from personally it's it's
0: pretty powerfully illustrated in that scene i think and i think it's such a strong kind of through-line through throughout the, the rest of the film. I'm glad you... That's probably my favourite moment in the, the film as well, that that initial discussion about the nature of sacrifice and, I guess, about faith. Love it. It's my favourite bit in the film. <laughs> and I used to always turn it off before that point. Why did you struggle with it so much while watching it? Because it's so... It, it was so bonkers, I think, uh, when I was of an age where... I mean th- things like the, the the Exorcist it was like a luxury item in the UK because it was banned for so long so when I saw I saw the Exorcist uh, I think I, I wound up seeing it when I was about 11 or something at a party um that one of my mates big brothers had thrown um and then I got just I was obsessed with the Exorcist so I, I kind of hunted down a lot of freaking stuff like I remember being obsessed with the Guardian um and then um, <laughs> that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a derisory snort. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just no one's ever brought up their love in the on uh, the guardian in front of me before no I, pr- I appreciate that i appreciate hearing favorites for the first time i interviewed a director once and he was telling me the movie that got him into making a horror filmmaker was critters Two. and i stopped the conversation a bit it's like i'm not questioning your love of critters Two or that it's wrong but i need to know why <laughs>
0: I, <laughs> I, as an artist in defense of myself having since revisited the guardian it's not the best <laughs> but at the time um when i was i don't know man what, what year did that come out what would that have been about i about 12 or 13 or something maybe when that came out maybe maybe
2: i think that's i think that's an important horror age because when i watched ninth configuration if i was around 14 that means like i was listening to the ramones and the sex pistols when i was 13. there's something yeah. about that age that you start finding your identity, your music, or you, the confidence to do that, and just sort of watching, watch, watching films. Again, I think it's my deep interest in, in philosophy and listening to people debate very complex point that I found incredibly interesting when i first watched it also my background like i was raised polish catholic so a lot of that narrative and, and the stories of uh which which it always reminds me in clockwork orange when he thinks about the bible and he thinks about like the orgies and the whipping and stuff like that so you're lucky so if you're raised catholic they talk about a lot of devils and sacrifice and just sort of like hardcore martyrdom which i think is fascinated as anyone who's into horror like you get your own you get your own like stephen king stories at a, at a young age with that yeah. so i also found it inspirational. Because before I became a producer and writer, I was a fine artist, and a lot of my art still today looks like plague, diseased, martyr scenes, and that and that to me is about about sacrifice, and it's about you know the the, the painfulness of uh, a consciousness, which I think ninth configuration is also trying to talk about. Because the reason to turn to insanity, even though it is not, it is a sort of a, a, a therapeutic insanity, is to sort of erase the consciousness and trauma. Of what's going on. I mean, when I think about the, the movie The Exorcist, the saddest part of that movie is that Karis has no faith, which which for like a priest is pretty much like a bullet to him that he has to struggle with. And the only thing that can cure him of this lack of faith is seeing an actual supernatural yep. force, which, by the way, when I was talking to Blatty, is that that is why he has faith, which is so interesting. So he has faith because he's able to see and perceive some something else, like what we can, I, I would document the supernatural. I am not religious for the same reason as I because there's, I have no perception. Or no feeling of sort of an other, other than us, other than our flesh and our our skin, in a very Cronenbergian way, how I view existence. I am still fascinated, though, in these debates around that, in the uncanny of seeing what would be considered to be the the, the devil, the angel, a miracle. Because if you you turn the coin and you sort of move from Blatty to Flannery O'Connor... Flannery O'Connor, a lot of his stuff is like, if Jesus and God are real and real in this world, it's incredibly frightening because they're very (laughs) strange and large forces that you don't want around. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but so it's a, a lot of that in the work that i do in the writing that i'm interested in the movies sort of is like why ninth configuration is also important and when i first proposed that i was thinking that you can't talk about ninth configuration without talking about all the actors involved in now. their genre and all the genre that kind of filters through ninth configuration because ninth configuration is not necessarily a horror film I would guess it's a a comedy drama and it has like all your favorite exploitation filmmaker in it. You know, William Peter Blatty brought you The Exorcist and then all these actors (laughs) that we are of because they're just great. No one deserves Devil Brand. He's too amazing. Which (laughs) was
0: why I think I didn't relate to it when I was younger. I saw William Peter Blatty's name on it. I knew that he obviously had written The Exorcist. I went into it believing what the box was telling me and got what at first appeared to very much be a slapstick farce with a guy with an S drawn on a t-shirt that thinks he's Superman and I I just couldn't and I think it took me maturing as a person and and reading more and watching more stuff to realise hang on a minute there's actually a lot of super fucking cool things in this and actually the transformation of as Stacy Keach changes from being Hudson Kane into Victor Kane, actually the people in the asylum go the other way. They kind of chill out the madder he gets, which is pretty fucking cool as yeah. well. Yeah,
2: I was looking for my fan of the movie guide so I can see how it was described to a fourteen-year-old Heather Buckley. But what did your VHS look like?
0: Oh God, I don't know. I don't even remember. That it was, it wasn't a VHS be- I owned. I used to rent it, right? So, and when we when we rented things back in the day, you would pick up the box. I would just see William Peter Blatty on the box, pick it up, take it over, and then you get a bare plastic box with a tape inside it. So you get a transparent plastic box with a tape inside it. uh, So you don't just fucking steal the whole thing.
2: Did you used to record tapes as a a young lad?
0: I did, but I didn't start doing that. I I would say... Oh God! I'm about to reveal a criminal act, but I used to <laughs> I used to buy things, record them, and take them back and say they weren't working. <laughs> I love
2: that. Well, you're a hooligan. That's fine. I mean, my I made my father drive me everywhere to find letter as I mentioned, letterbox versions of stuff. One reason I saw my VHS collection when I think everyone sacrificed theirs is because I had all these sort of because of course you make like punk mixtapes for your friends, but mm-hmm. I had like mixtapes tapes on VHS of like, <laughs> like Hellraiser three, Entertainment Week. He was showing the red carpet with Doug Bradley and pinhead makeup. Like, <laughs> I have all that recorded. It's just, I have clipping books. It's so sad. This is like, why were you unloved and thought strange growing up? It's like, these are all the reasons. Your clipping books, your VHSs. So I'm going to, it's not too long, but it might be interesting. Cause I don't know. I, there could be some folks out there that have the Phantom of the Video Guide.
0: Cool. Okay. You can't, uh, obviously yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't really work on, on an audio podcast, but Heather is holding up a copy. I, well, I
2: was just... <laughs> yeah, that's that's it's, it's true, but I wanted to, for all the kids playing at home for you guys. So you can see this is a very original young Heather Buckley edition. I have no idea how I came across this book. Heather, that, that so must ninth, be a
0: well-thumbed book by now.
2: It might have like little markings next to it. I, another one that was very important to me was the Fangoria Video Guide Volume Two with Jason on the cover, and okay. I would like mark little things in there. And it's just w- well worn. It, it's in the library, <laughs> which is awesome because this is ninth configuration. Okay. On this page alone are very important movies to me. I have Night of the Hunter, The okay. Night Porter, right. which I just got on, on Blu-ray to upgrade, the, the awesomeness of Nighthawks because of Rucker Howard's beauty, and then underneath <laughs> is the ninth configuration. So 1979, it has three little uh, diamonds out of four or out of five. Produced, directed, and scripted from his own novel by William Peter the Exorcist Blatty, there you go. this surreal exercise, originally titled Twinkle Twinkle Clear Kane," stars Stacey Keach's Kane, a shrink ostensibly sent to separate the men from the Meshuganas <laughs> at the remote Gothic castle in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> that's been converted into a sort of military playpen for real and or imagined nom-mental casualties. Only problem is Kane may be the looniest of the lot. The Ninth Configuration is a wildly uneven mix of free-form <laughs> fr- Fury and Freudian vaudeville at its best. Its non-sequitur exchanges play like a one-floor of the cuckoo's nest, script doctored by Bill Griffith's Zippy the Pinhead broad satire lifted intact from some bad college play remedial theological probings and at its core an intriguing tub of war between keach and an off-balance astronaut cutshaw imaginably interpreted by wilson with a tighter focus and short of running time than in configuration could have been a cult classic there are so many who already deem it so and it stands unsteadily bladdy's one-man movie offers enough black humor offbeat uh uh and celluloid surprises to make it well worth an attentive viewing so for some reason when i was a young girl i really wanted to rent ninth configuration from the video store
1: well that was a podcast guys <laughs> <laughs> no um, uh, that's i think that's that's pretty close there's some there's some uh, there's some kind of cool jabs in there though as well oh yeah yeah. I don't think it's unfair in its jabs
0: at times. Some of them are pretty fair, I think.
2: It might be misunderstood. So this was published in uh, 1989, which is sort of like it's a cool time for genre, cool time for film, because like the mid-80s, you're moving out of the counterculture. It kind of died in the early 90s, and you still had... You could still only know about the, the cinema through buying a lot of books and going to the library and sitting in Barnes & Noble in the mall in Central Jersey and reading all the film books. It's the only way that you could find this stuff. But I, I don't, I don't agree, Mister Video Watchdog, with those, with those jabs because I don't find <laughs> the conversation to be remedial. No, me neither. Well, no, that either.
0: was something I wouldn't agree with. I actually think the conversation's quite impressive and uh, spectacularly deep. But th- there were some, some bits that I, I did agree with.
2: To me, it's always, and it was like movies during the time the freeze frame ending. I will never understand. I think that yeah. comes from TV. <laughs>
1: That does, that, that does feel like it's kind of like the migration from TV, doesn't it? Definitely.
0: Is now a good time to talk about Jason Miller and Joe Spinell? I think it's always a good time
2: to talk about Jason Miller and Joe Spinell because this, cause this is what will sell. Because they're going to be horror fans listening to this and go, why is this applicable to me? And it's applicable to you because of all the people who would go on or were working in the genre that day. Because I assume part of our conversation will bring us to Richard Lynch. It's yeah, like I've like, got, got that down. Of character actors and went, who, what, wh- <laughs> what genre character actors do we need? So Jason Miller, obsessed with his performance in The Exorcist. It's just sad that he didn't do so much acting in his life because who has a face like that? Yep. And you're used to him playing those, those kind of like more solid, mournful roles. Mm-hmm. But here he shows his comic timing. That he's very funny. And he's, again, as you mentioned, he's able to play with the tone of the material that he's get, get- getting that it feels so sincere at some point, and then it turns around and it's, and it's actually a joke. Or is it a joke?
0: He's clearly okay. having the best time in this. He's got one of the most expressive faces Have uh, The Exorcist, easily one of my top three favorite films of all time, horror or, you, or not.
2: Were you raised Catholic?
0: No, I was raised nothing. Same, um, interesting. interesting. The way he emotes is unbelievable. I'm talking exactly. a lot about people's faces tonight. Normally yeah. I just talk shit. And, and Well, that's
2: when you're talking about like character actors, they have their, their face because it's, it's kind of a shorthand yeah. to who they're playing. And that's why they're, they're great helpers in films. I mean, I'm only interested when I work on movies, I have a list of old man character actors that I need to work with. <laughs> <laughs> There's a place where I could put them. That's, that's very, that's very special. I was asking about sort of like rate raised as sort of deal because uh, my writing partner and I, we both were both were really like Eastern European Catholic. You might be religious and I'm like a like a existentialist like atheist on, on 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 my end. And it's just it's a lot of horror that comes from people with a Catholic background who are filmmakers like the violence of Scorsese's films mm-hmm. and the Exorcist William Friedkin. It's like he, you. Tra- I don't know what that is. It probably it, it it probably is just random. But we've always noted that. It's like God. That's a really fucked up film. But when you <laughs> say, when
0: you say it like that, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think I was just more raised by David Cronenberg than anything else. I mean, that he's the best
1: yeah i want to i want to i want to pull something in just um just quickly uh so i want to jump ahead to basically the kind of the main the central twist um in the film i think are you, you want to head this up i mean i know i will head the episode up with a spoiler warning yeah but i think that i think it's probably time to dig into that um we didn't wait whoa, whoa, we didn't touch on joe Spinell. oh yeah let's talk just well, well,
2: everyone first. should know that Spinell's character in the movie is named Spinell. yep <laughs> yeah, I think that's the number
0: one most hot. I am on. I am of the understanding that he was friends with Blatty, and he just said, "I want to be in this. Put me in it. I will just go by my own character's name. And my character's not in the book. Just put me in it. I'll just make up my shit on the go."
2: And speaking of faces, his face. I have the Mondo Maniac <laughs> poster in my bedroom, which which is like the three fourths profile of Spinel and black and red because a lady needs a Spinell in her bedroom. <laughs> I am fascinated by his sort of again the effortless acting that is incredibly charismatic and fascinating to watch. Unbelievably photogenic, though not necessarily a handsome man. That's beautiful fair. eyes, beautiful big eyes and lashes. Completely ravaged skin and this this strange line reading that he oh, 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 always 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 gives. It's part feminine. There's an elegance to it. There's also like this awesome Brooklyn accent to it. He's fessing and everything he does. And he was a staple of the 70s because how many movies was he in in the 70s? That went on to just be like a list legendary film.
0: And when you actually think that he ad libbed everything in this film, he's. I, I
2: say I always say the line from like uh, that Jason Miller says he goes like "Get the fuck out of here!" Like the way when he's trying to chase Finella away.
0: <laughs> they they shared a lot of screen time together. That you must have quite enjoyed that.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes, I did because they're fascinating.
0: Absolutely.
2: And sometimes I like to sit there and call up my friends and think about like, what. because one reason that I love character actors is because they have this incredible, unique look to them that I find endless, endlessly fascinating because when you think about movie star, you think of sort of like the, the, the Tom Cruise sort of look, but the actors that I am only interested in have this sort of very sort of like big eyes, rugged look like Harry Dean Stanton. It's like, you just, yeah. it's just, you could just stare at them. You just have a move they didn't do anything. They smoke cigarettes for 90 minutes. <laughs> and it's it, it's this hypnotic state that they put they put me in. And I was as we were talking about Stacey Keach before, I was just sort of meditating on Keach as an actor. How Keach is able to appear on camera. How he's lit, how the uh how the, the lens looks at him. Because there's people that are just photogenic. And that doesn't mean that they're beautiful or not beautiful. They're just highly photogenic and interesting when you put them in a camera. A yeah. strange story. So the person who used to drive me to do all these VHSs all the time and like would take me to Fangoria Horror Conventions was my father. And my father loves movies. And just recently, like someone needed like an old man to tie, tie up for their short film. And it's like, <laughs> have Joe <laughs> Buckley do it. He needs to like get away from my mother. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and you see him in like, a, nor- a normal everyday world. He kind of looks like Paul Elsa. Smith or Paul Sorvino, but he lit <laughs> under a camera. It's weird. It's like, why is my father so photogenic? <laughs> so there's there's a something that these that these character actors have that it's almost mystical. Unless I feel that way, I feel under the under the spell of Richard Lynch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Richard Lynch is another one. Uh, on we did an episode of In the Mouth of Madness, and I talked about Jürgen Prochnow's face in a very similar way. I feel like uh, Jürgen Prochnow's got a very similar. Kind ravaged haggard face yeah, like but weather beaten yeah but he's Get such a fucking interesting face that I just can't help but look at. I want to look at him. Yes,
2: you don't have to do anything. It's just—it's very interesting. I'm glad that we all feel the same way because as someone who make who makes films, it's just why does that? Why do I light that face and and get a long lens on that face? And it's the best face ever.
1: Yeah, I I, I always feel like I'm a character actor or character actress for a reason. Right, so I have this kind of this ability to kind of effortlessly guide the material.
0: Yeah, I feel like that there's so much more on a character actor beyond just being pretty or they carry so much more I think and so much of that is in their face there's so many boring faced fucking
1: actors out there is this is this just going to end with me once again loudly enthusing about how much I love David Strathairn so. Yeah, yeah, again, you're fucking. are obs- allowed to. You're well, this is obsessed with David Strathairn.
2: This is what we're. I was going to say blessed in this world is because a lot of American actors I feel are not as ravaged as then we get the UK actors who you know Ian McShane's face.
0: Yeah, you get Peter Mullen. I
2: mean, those faces are amazing, <laughs> and you don't see them any 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 place else. <laughs> I mean, Ray Winstone could be more ravaged, but he's still great. <laughs>
0: It could stand That's to be more case. rough. Yeah. We'll, pa- we'll pass that on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but give them time. That's like a character actor can start. Like, Dean, Harry Dean Stan like, acted... Till his last his-
0: breath, pretty much.
2: Yeah, like past 70s. I don't know when he died, but he was, he was always nineties. He was in his, 90s. It was in his so 90s. It's hard to know. Yeah, lucky... Which is which is amazing is that you only get better with age with a with a, with a certain sort of with a certain sort of role. Um, and I think also the way the actors um, work is of course like they have to be aware of their presence to be able to project that. Because the guy who said that character acting is sort of like a shorthand is I was interviewing uh, John Shuck, who I love, for the Demon Knight disc, and I and I went, I flew down to where he was, and I had that conversation. We talked about Altman a lot. Because he's not in the film Ninth Configuration. He's not He's not in the film uh, Demon Knight a lot. But when John Shuck says yes to a Demon Knight interview, you go to him. For sure. And so, so he, ta- he talked about his character in the film. It's like it's. It, there's physicality. There's sort of presence. Because you're not there a lot on screen time. So you create this shorthand so people get the character right away. So he felt that's sort of one of the... What are the traits of sort of hiring an actor like him or that type of actor is re- really bringing that to the role? Yeah. A lot of these guys have done extensive theater, yeah. and when you've done extensive theater, then that that you have a whole different kind of actor you're working with. And I was always interested in in in, in filmmaking in general. Is that like for first time directors, it's like God, if you can find an actor with a theater background, they discuss theater. They just run themselves
0: on stage. I would sooner have someone who'd never been in a film but was a stage actor than someone who'd done loads of film and that was their expectation.
1: I wanna pivot back to the film. <laughs> All right. Uh Well, for fuck's sake, just, right? okay, uh, if you must. Um just <laughs> to talk about where or just to talk about where this goes and how it gets there.
0: Yep. It gets madder and madder. Um you've got Major Namek goes from being having a Superman S drawn on him. To wearing a full Superman uniform. I also noticed they had a I had a, a phone booth which he got changed in, oh, like, I didn't which see I that, thought yeah. was quite is quite lovely.
2: And casually during a pan, do you see it? So not a lot yeah. of time is spent that he gets changed in a booth. It just happens to be there. Yeah, that, but, that's the comedy of it.
1: Which is quite yeah. it's quite lovely. That's but um, that, like I think a, a lot of the, a lot of the funniest jokes and most a lot of the things that I've seen in film and TV. A lot of the jokes are things that you just spot like that. Like you say when it's like it's a really smart thing, but no time is spent on it at all. It's incidental, and you either see it or you don't.
0: You've got him. You've got Nazi uniforms. Uh, you've got a whole section about casting the right dogs to be in Shakespearean plays. You've got you
2: have the Dracula poster.
0: Yeah, you've got Frankenstein masks, um, and then you've got a guy on a fucking jetpack. So uh, yeah, it gets madder and madder and madder till it hits a kind of, I guess, an apex. I guess a madness apex, yeah. And then you have your kind of tipping point of madness, which I guess is the revelation. About Kane's real identity.
1: Yeah, which is at the point that we understand that we kind of were introduced to the fact that what we've understood previously to be his brother, this kind of uh, killer Kane, this kind of mythical figure, mm-hmm. he killed a bunch of people during the war, is actually Kane himself. Yes. And yeah, and like.
2: And we, we find that out how Ed Flanders interacts with Stacey Keach's character, right? is that Ed Flanders is always glib and always fun and always trying to make him laugh. I absolutely love this. Yeah. Which which makes the reveal even stronger because he is kind of always acting like his brother. Yeah. Or if we have siblings, how we sort of kid around with them. And then we learn when he sort of, we have this, it's almost like the end of Psycho when we have to sit and explain what went on and the and the and the cops are there the military the military police he goes into his backstory and he says i was always the one to make him laugh i was always the funny one
1: see i i thought i thought this was amazing like see um i think it's a great reveal anyway but the way that it's done for one thing it pushes another great almost sideline performance into the forefront Mm -hmm. as well because he's he's great all the way through this yeah, I th- I'd like I said, I think it's a great twist, but it's presented in a way that kind of pulls a tenderness at his performance that hadn't really... Because his performance had mostly been played for laughs up to that point. Right,
0: all the stuff with the, the trousers. With, yeah. Uh, in fact, Blatty himself, I think, steals trousers from him. That is correct.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, the, but the way that ends up playing out, uh, it kind of it explains away what you've seen in a way that you don't expect. And like I say, mm. it kind of pulls this kind of this fragility and this kind of tenderness out of his performance that hadn't been there. And I think that it's definitely a much better way to reveal that than the way it's revealed in Shutter Island with the whiteboard in the lighthouse. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, like, but no, um, I, think, I think it's... It's a much
0: more human way. It's yeah. incredibly well done. Yeah.
1: I really like it's... it's, it's um, like I say, it's a great twist, but the way it's presented is just unbelievable, I think.
2: I agree with you. Yeah. And and great insight that it pulls the tenderness's performance because he says, oh... As he was trying to play with his brother and have his brother remo- uh, re- remember him the entire time, and it also pulls out the tenderness, but also the incredible sadness.
1: It's so yeah. tragic, yeah.
2: Because he does break, because he does break down that he doesn't remember me, and he set this all up so he could try to help his brother. Yeah, and I think it makes it more personal than a story, which we we I believe there are. Other films that sort of use that uh, the, the 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 asylum trope to try to learn from the mental patients trope, but it's like this whole film is really about his brothers, yeah. And that and that is also a, a reveal because by revealing that one, pat, one, one fact that he's actually killer killer claim, it's like we're watching a movie we we've been watching a movie about brothers this whole time, yeah. And uh, and loss of that,
1: yeah. no, one it a one to my like my expectations and my understanding of it in a way that I was not ready for at all. So see sh- uh, I think it's I think it's shortly after this the, oh, it needs to be that we get to the uh you know the the, the bar scene where um yes ah uh, yeah so Cutshaw escapes and uh he goes to this bar where he's kind of set upon by the speaker guy has
0: had the discussion with Kane by this point that's completely flipped his kind of perception of things he has to get away for a while uh I think and he goes to this bar close by and there's a biker gang in there we get a brief glimpse of the biker gang earlier doing what appears to be a lynching on the back of a truck but we get to see a lot more of them and it is lovely to see Richard Lynch in there um, although he's playing an absolute fucker like. um,
1: I have a hard time finding anything lovely about this scene this really really unsettled me the, like the bar sequence as it plays out I found extremely hard to watch And I'm not sure entirely why that was.
2: Maybe maybe we need to to talk that out because I always felt as like the ninth configuration (laughs) could have been great as something that was a was was a comedy, a drama, a philosophical piece, and then all of a sudden, even the filmmaking changes to mm -hmm. do what is almost like a straight humiliating exploitation scenes where you have your gels up, yeah, you have Richard Lynch and Steve Sandor and fucking eye makeup. It make it, it, it. stylistically it makes no sense to exist in this film which is why it has to exist in this film
0: yes the build-up actually throughout the whole scene the build attention is unbelievable because it starts you know right away that it's this isn't going to end well from the first minute there's all those guys in there and and has had a fair bit to drink and it's such a slow steady build it really ramps attention up in a in a way that I'd totally forgotten about it's probably been about, I'd say, conservatively about six years since I last watched this film. And I had totally forgotten about the level of tension that's in this scene. I was blown away.
1: And I think, Heather, you're hitting on something there when you say that. I think that it's not just that it's this extremely uncomfortable scene and this extremely well-made scene and extremely well-written stuff. It's how jarring it is. In the, in the context of yeah, what you've seen. Ali, and, yeah. and I mean, we, at this point, we've seen a lot of stuff, and we've seen the film run the gauntlet in a, of tones in a lot of different ways, and nothing prepared me for how uncomfortable this made me. And I think that, yeah, I've, I've, it's as much to do with that as it is about the scene itself.
2: Can you sort of pinpoint what made you uncomfortable about it? Was it the humiliation?
1: I think so. I th- yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I think it probably is that. I think that I've always had this um, thing where I think that this kind of victimizing of a vulnerable person who's vulnerable for whatever reason mm-hmm. is something that I think has always kind of put me on the back foot. And I think that, in this context where I think... Because I, um, I really like the cutshaw character. Oh, yeah. I, I'm very invested You're in him at this point. To. Yeah, of uh, course. It, and I think, that's, again, it's kind of a nod to how well like, how well put together this thing is and how good the performances are. But, like... So I think that, yeah, there's something about how... Especially, you know, when he's, like, chained up yeah. and things... When and that's they're kind
0: pushing of, him to the floor. Yeah, like...
1: He, he can't really... Can't really block himself, so he's really at their mercy. Yeah, it's exactly that. I think that it's just, um, yeah, when, when when you know that character and you understand it, and you're basically watching him interact with people who don't, mm-hmm. It's the whole thing's put together in a way where I think that, like, everything that they do right from the beginning when they're kind of knocking his drink around and stuff, I think that you feel every one of those kind of, like, little invasions of his personal space and stuff just as much as you do the kind of heavier, the more obvious, like, violence. Yeah, you've got this feeling of dread. You know it's not going to end well, but I think that it probably goes back to the fact that yeah, historically, I tend to struggle with scenes where characters who you know are either physically or mentally vulnerable get kind of jabbed at by people who either are willfully ignorant to or don't understand their situation.
2: Thematically, uh, Stacy Keach's character Kane goes off to, goes after Major Groper for being cruel, and he mentions something
1: mm-hmm.
2: about the caterpillars. Now, in the actual book itself twinkle twinkle killer cane is that there is a there's an entire speech there about people who torture and kill caterpillars and I think it's related to sort of a story of a, a boy that they knew that did that so it could be the crescendo of that element it's like if grouper is cruel if the so it first starts it's like the vietnam wor- world the, the world is cruel vietnam vietnam is cruel and therefore you have this uh, effect of these these characters in the asylum grouper and the people who run it as we've seen have run in these institutions you've seen a lot of 70s films they're cruel but this time they have and aven- they have the avenging angel. They have Cain who's going to go in, and then our sort of our, our 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 third level of cruelty are the bikers because it's like it's it's C- Cutshaw's in danger. Cain is Cain is humiliated himself, and it's the idea of it's also the. I mean, I'm trying to figure out from a sort of like a from a text standpoint, sort of a biblical standpoint. It's like he decides to uh, not turn the other cheek, of course. And to, to to strike out vengeance for his his friend and save yeah. and save his friend, and he t- to, t- he, t- to teach him.
0: Yeah, and he pushes so hard against his his nature and who he now knows himself to be. I think that's really really interesting watching him. Oh yeah, the bills struggle, so when he actually snaps so struggle good. with who he is and what he is at that point until because we know
2: he's a killer. We know he's a killer because that's been yeah, revealed.
0: And he knows he's a killer now. Yeah, watching him battle that while his friends getting humiliated and ultimately, essentially raped, it's
1: pretty powerful stuff. And I can understand much why kind of why uh, you found it disarming. I, I mean, by the time this was over, I felt like I've been in the best possible way. I felt like I've been watching that scene for about four days, and it is a long scene. Actually, <laughs> it is a long scene. But yeah, no, it was, uh, it was heavy going. But I, but I wanted to kind of give it some fairer time because I think that it's pretty so. It's two
2: levels you. of sacrifice. It's like if if Cain has found peace. And playing the role of someone who's not a murderer and playing the role of someone who is a helper and a healer. He has to actually sacrifice the nature that he's found yeah. that he could live with to be the monster again to save his friend.
1: Yes, so after we get clear of the scene um, Kane and Cutshaw they head back to the asylum I think it's worth mentioning
0: what happens pretty quickly after that oh yeah on you go that Kane embraces who he is and um, oh Jesus yeah of course destroys a whole biker gang himself with his bare hands yeah that's something we probably shouldn't leave out he throws someone (laughs) so hard against a bar that their hair falls off (laughs) like (laughs) It might have been a wig, but I would like to believe that that. he threw them so hard that their hair flew off. Yeah, I'm happy with that. He's a badass.
2: And the beginning, of course, is like grabbing that guy's hand when he comes up on the floor and crushing the glass in that guy's hand and how he he has such a
0: high-pitched scream.
1: (laughs) Um, It looks so good as well that when that happens, all you see is his hand reaching into the shot to do it. That's right, yeah. It's so cool.
0: He's got a real creepy Elvis vibe to him, Steve Sandow's character. It is a real yes. weird Elvis-y thing. I would, that love,
2: I've... I would love to know why the eyeliner. Yeah. I love the eyeliner, but you want to know why the eyeliner. Yeah, to but me. why?
0: To me, it felt a bit um, Vernon Welles-y, a bit like Wes from Road Warrior. And by the way,
2: Richard, as you have Spinell as Spinell, Richard Lynch is Richard as well.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> I don't know in contemporary cinema if I see a lot of that. Where you just get an iconic like character actor, it's like it's just gonna we're just gonna call you by your name. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. And we need to bring that back.
1: A particular like name makes things final. easier. But yeah, whenever so um yeah they they get back to uh the hospital or the facility after that, and um it's at this point I think that the film starts to pull in towards the end, and again it pivots back front and totally it pivots very sharply for because the, the barium scenes are like absolute chaos, and then you get back to this kind of like what is like one of the most kind of like thematically interesting, also one of the most tender scenes of the film it's really it's night and day from what I come before it's
2: like they're at a church and it has that sort of quiet prayer-like feel
1: yeah that reverential reverential kind of
0: confessional feel yeah
2: yes and also there's 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 sadness in this
0: because there's the
2: reveal of Cain's true nature there's also an acceptance of Cain as true nature and the sinner by Katshaw because he was able to save him and I think even for all of us all our misfits uh, listening out there is that the idea that someone would come to our uh, wretched nature's rescue? I think ma- means a lot to uh, to Kutcher's character, and I think a lot to the audience that's watching it. It's like, which is the idea of sacrifice—that you've thrown it all away, even the own comfort of who you are, to come save me. Even though Katya himself put him, put himself out of desperation in the course of danger.
1: Yeah, he kind of he kind of uh, was kind of in the fighting line. He
2: provoked he provoked it through his actions. So even if it is provoked, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be rescued or saved anyway
1: if someone has the
0: ability to do that.
1: Yeah, the ability and the inclination to do that.
0: To hulk out, perhaps. But then what you really have, ultimately, is is Cain's final rebellion against his true nature and showing that by removing himself from the equation that there is true sacrifice and true goodness in man. Well,
2: because because after the act of violence, he goes back to a quiet place. Yeah. And of course, like he, the ending that I like would be he dies in battle.
0: Right. Perhaps this is a good time to discuss, has, discuss the endings. Then
2: he went into sac- and he went into sacrifice.
0: So the ending on the second site Blu-ray is the ending where Kane kills himself with Cutshaw there, and Cutshaw leaves unaware that Kane has killed himself and notices blood on his shoe and runs back in and Kane has stabbed himself or cut his wrists or something. Or something. No, he stabbed himself, he's got a lot of blood in his stomach. And then it ends with, I guess, Cutshaw finding out that there is life beyond this life when he There's
2: also the carrying down the stairs... And uh, sort of like an a yeah. pieta moment of how Mary is with uh, is with Christ over in Rome,
0: that statue. That's a great shot. So that's the ending that we both watched.
2: There is an ending on the VHS and the letterbox and the the, the um, laser disc. And then the VHS have the ending where he does not stab himself. Right. So, okay. it, so it looks like to me and why I think that it works succinctly is that I believe when he was in battle with the bikers, that was his death sacrifice he was making there, and that he decided that I'm going to die for this guy. Because is in a dangerous situation, Kane has put himself in a dangerous situation of fighting off all all these bikers and bringing him home and that he was dying, which would also make sense why the confessional part of the end of the film is also so sad and mournful. The, the idea of him stabbing himself because he it just, to me, the psychology, uh, the psychology around that is like, I'm stabbing myself because I didn't die in battle, because it wasn't a straw death, because I was trying to sacrifice for you, and they didn't kill me. So I'm going to kill myself yeah. to show you that.
0: Interesting. Okay. And it's
2: a little bit more complicated for me to get there than you were stabbed and hurt in battle and, that sac- and the whole sacrifice of bringing him home to die because of that.
0: But I love that um, after all of this really, really heavy stuff, it's very, I mean, it's a lot to kind of digest in the last 15 minutes or so of the film. It ends on a really uplifting note, certainly in the version that, that we saw. Yeah. Quite similar in a way to the, the ending of The Exorcist. I mean, it's. I guess it's impossible not to draw some kind of parallel, but um, it ends in a very uplifting note where we do find out that, I mean, it kind of ends with cut short of Joyce and I suppose that his friend, which is essentially what Cain became, has reached out to him kind of from beyond the veil and showed him that there is something beyond death. And I think the ending is quite lovely.
2: It is. And if we look at the exorcist ending where Reagan kisses the priest, it means that she, to me remembers a little who is the hero in her story. Yeah. Even though she was possessed by the devil. And in here there's a scene where, because it's about the metal and coveting the metal. And then at some point, Katshaw says, it's like, if you die, it's a throwaway line. Show me a sign. Yeah. And he's able to find Kut- Kutcha is able to find his medal again and sees it as Cain giving him a sign that there's something beyond, which is which is the hope, which is the hope of the the supernatural Christ, the afterlife, whatever it might be within the within this type of storytelling is the joy of it. Which is interesting, because though the Catholic Church hated The Exorcist, The Exorcist to me would be one of the best recruiting films for that point of view, because it's like, <laughs> who's the hero of the story? Well, it's going to be the Catholic priest who's going like, to kick Satan's ass, right? <laughs> it's, it's the same thing like uh, like, like here. It's like so sacrifice, belief. Uh, but I don't know if the ending – the exor- the exorcist is definitely a Catholic ending. I wouldn't say nine configuration was because it's just talking about that there is something beyond this. Yeah, yeah. And also, if there's something beyond this, and let's say we're going to use the word heaven, it also means – that Cain was forgiven and wasn't damned.
0: Wow, yeah. As I think yeah, about true. it now,
2: which is why we do these podcasts.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having on this kind of thing. He held it first
0: to folks. Definitely.
1: Um, so, Heather, I think that this film, like, critics have been kinder to it over the years, I think. What are the reasons why you think that this, because obviously this didn't, this didn't make money at the time. What are the reasons why you thought that was?
2: I don't know. It's just, it's probably the content of it, because it's like, it's not it's not an action film. It was not how comedies were back in the day. It might have been you guys can can, can speak because you're over in the in the, the, the UK area. Does it feel a little bit more European in its humor?
0: I think it does. I, I think it probably yeah, does. I think it yeah. does. I very much think it does.
2: Because we, we would have to look at what was – and it's also a hybrid movie. It's a movie that has exploitation and biker elements. It talks about Catholicism. Talks about atheism. It talks about the Vietnam. There's just so many things that are in there. And I think it's hard to talk about a film. Like, Ghoulies 2, very easy to talk about.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. That
2: configuration, we're still sitting here as people who, like, some people saw it since we were, like, young punk rockers. Other people are just seeing it now. And, like, there's still so much to talk about what the film is about. And I'd also challenge, do mainstream audiences want movies? That they want to sit and philosophically think about what something is, is about. I mean, all this inspires the work that I do. And I myself read philosophy, which is like a hated subject in, uh, in university. We'll hate it. They, a lot of people are not a huge fan of philosophy, but I like reading narratives and very complex things and figuring out what they're trying to tell me. And, and film to me is the strongest part if you're going to do a Socratic philosophical rhetorical debate. Film is the best place for it because you're going to also be able to get the read off the actors and the read off the narrative to figure out sort of like these greater truths of what the film is trying to do. I also feel on my end, this sort of filmmaking is incredibly hard to do, which is very talking heavy. Not very action heavy, so it comes down to like who you're casting and what the script is to even pull something like this off. And now you're pulling something off that kind of nobody wants or no one understands, yep. which is why you have to love this film more because no one asked for Ninth Configuration. People <laughs> need to make, uh, you know, more more movies uh, adapt more of his his books. They probably wanted Legion, even though Legion itself is. So similar to what Ninth Configuration is doing, it's just more on the genre side.
1: I think it's a shame that a film where its disparate elements coexist so well that it almost suffered for that. In the sense that, from what I can tell, from because I did, I tried to read up a little bit about the reception at the time and things ahead of doing this, and it seemed like some of the problems that it had commercially were that it was difficult to know how to sell this to people because obviously, <laughs> yeah, because because you had Blatty, who I mean, the original. The book was originally headed up with, like, nobody writes humor like William Peter Blatty, And then it was when that book was reissued, it was with it had become a tale of shrieking terror, of which I don't it's not. (laughs) And uh, but also you had Blatney, who I'd say, like, I mean, a lot of his it seems like a lot of kind of his background and a lot of what he was made of was comedy writing, who had just made his name as a horror writer do you think it's possible that there's no right way to sell this to mainstream audience?
2: I almost, the way that I talk about it when I want people to watch it with me, other than it means a lot to me. So it's like one, I feel that it depicts a lot of my interests in a, in a, in a cinematic way artistically, but I talked about it from a, from the script and technique level of why filmmakers should watch it because of the type of writing to general audiences. I mean I I used to be in like market, marketing for thir- for 13 years so the idea of like how would you it's like it's because you could even go like it's a, it's a comedy in an asylum but I don't think a lot of folks want to be challenged by the debate and the subjects that the film is about and that mm. might be its fatal flaw because it I is so. funny because it has all these great characters in it but it's like what it's talking about is Challenging, but not in a good way. It's not in a way that people want to be challenged. I don't know if it makes you feel smarter when you're done watching it. It's like, and, and also if, um, I mean, I get, again, as a, as a, as a non-believer, I am fascinated in theological debate because I think it's, it, or, or, um, you know, what was his, 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 his background? Cause I was, I was in Georgetown looking at the steps so recently. It's sort of like this, this Jesuit academic debate. I find it's fast. That is so specific of a need to tell, to, to have people watch it. So for filmmakers, definitely how this, how the script is put together and how you do this sort of like fencing dialogue. There's other there's other examples of this, but I think on both sides, which it harkens back to um like Camus and Satra to be like their plays and stuff like that, both sides are equally meshed because it's a rhetorical debate. A lot of times you have great characters that are running through the film with monologues, and you don't have the other folks being present there to have the other side of that conversation. And I sometimes feel that a lot of movies they have a strong through line philosophically but the other side of the debate is not made as charismatic as the side that you're on. And this would be a film that I've shown it as an example, or I've had folks watch it to understand that or folks that love character actors, but I don't think I could sell it to a lot of folks. What movie that debates religion in such a sense has ever been very pop like how do you how do you talk about these things in a broader sense that isn't so isolating yeah because the techniques that they use in the film and the dialogue and the acting is all very isolating unless you're you're open to it yeah in a sense because it's so specific but that's all the reason why why i love it because it has such a unique vision i mean how do you sell people to watch like holy mountain I mean, it's <laughs> it's necessary for everyone on Earth to watch Holy Mountain, but it's hard to get them to sit down because the because what it's about and what it looks like is incredibly challenging.
1: And I think that, I, th- I think that there's something in that. I think that there's so much going on here, and there's so many different elements com- like that are so disparate, competing that I think that it probably would have been difficult to pitch to the mainstream audience and get them to engage with it. Way that fucking nightmare. It's so. a fucking nightmare yeah. from a marketing standpoint. I'm really glad you brought this to the table, Heather. As a first-time viewer, I like I absolutely love this. A lot of the stuff that we do for the podcast is... Uh, Goofy. F- but, about yeah, that, but it's also often like a first watch for me as well. So I'm f- flying blind to things that a lot of the time people have kind of got these kind of very deep-seated attachments to. And it can sometimes be a little bit difficult for me seeing it for the first time, age 31, to pick that apart. I didn't really have any problem doing that tonight because I just, like, I love this front to back. There you go.
0: Well, well,
2: part of these podcasts are to be uh, evangelical for the crazy shit we love.
1: This is why we're here. That's why we're here. That's we what we're doing. And we need
2: to convert other people into watching this crazy shit that we love.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, six years on from your last one, what did you make of Annie? I, well, I mean, six
0: years ago, I loved it. It's one of those films that, although I, when I was younger and and dafter and had stupid long hair, I tried, I, I, kinda, I couldn't wrap my head around, but I kept going back to it. Mm-hmm. like it, it wasn't like I ever thought oh no that's weird I'm not I'm, I'm not investing in that I kept returning to it because there was something in it that engaged me to a point where I, I had to kind of one day see how it shook out and I think I was probably about 18 the first time I, I watched it properly and when I stuck with it I realized what I'd been missing and I, I don't think it's something that at 15 I wouldn't necessarily have picked up on mm. but I've revisited that a bunch of times since and yeah I, I love it I think it's a I think it's a great film it's mad in the best way but I think that's part of what makes it so great
2: and what's important about this podcast is that you could be desperately in love with Night Configuration and you'll have no one to discuss Night Configuration with.
1: I think that this is why we're a firm believer in letting guests use the films. Yeah, part yeah. of what this particular podcast was
0: about was bringing these films that maybe weren't received so well critically or maybe are a bit underseen. Yes, and underseen. And yeah. arguing, arguing why they, they should, why they deserve a new a second appraisal or just a, a new glimpse or a new audience. And I think that audience, though they may have to be cajoled into it, I think think the audience for the ninth configuration exists there now.
2: yeah because it can't even we can't even it's not even at the phase where it can be underrated because it's so underseen
0: yeah i absolutely think great success across the board uh
1: across the three of us i feel like mitch this is actually taking you a bit taken aback by uh, how much you like this oh, it's just a great selection yeah yeah like i mean yeah it's been like uh comfortably my favorite of the first watches that we've had well, so fine. far heather thanks a lot for taking the time uh to talk the ninth configuration with us tonight just before we pull this tonight. And I do want to take a minute to talk about The Ranger. All right. Yeah, just to, like, um, so obviously it's opening fright fest this year. We're all stoked to see it. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about it?
2: It's a, uh, I produced it on the uh, Glass-Eyed Side with Jen Wexler. First time director. She's made incredible films like Most Beautiful Island and Darling and all that stuff like that. And it's a, it's a punk rock slasher film. It's uh, done in sort of like heightened candy color, Lisa Frank kind of vibe. And uh, it's the story of a, of, a, of a final girl. As she sort of it's uh, you know it it follows uh, follows her and her friends for a bit and then she faces off with the uh, with the big bad and it's a full punk rock soundtrack, day Glow, Abortion, Fang, The Avengers. It's uh it's meditative, it's quiet, it's wild. There's a lot of different uh tones and feelings in it. If I had to tell you guys like what it kind of feels like, it kind of feels like in uh like an R-rated goosebumps because it's highly stylized, it's fun to watch, it's a fucking blast and there there but there but there is some gore in it.
1: Yeah. I can't, I can't, I Cannot wait to see this. And every
2: punk rocker who has seen it says that these people remind me. That's one reason I wanted to do the screenplay because I read the screenplay and I went, these assholes reminded me of my friends. (laughs) (laughs) And I I love the Ranger character. And it's like, that's it. It has to be made. And it's like, and I... And I sort of like knew how to bring uh, help bring the uh, the punk rock elements to uh, to Jen due to my uh, lifestyle decision I made when I was 13 years <laughs> old. Right. So um,
1: this uh, premiered at uh, South by Southwest, right?
2: Uh, yeah, it premiered at uh, South by Southwest as a midnight movie, and it has done a very large film fest run because we all felt that mm-hmm. sort of a slasher film, a horror film, is for the proletariat. It's for <laughs> it's for everybody, and it's also because it's a punk rock film. It's for every punk rocker out there. and It has to do the tw- from my perspective, because my social media is so active, and since I go to to film fest all over the place, I, I also want to make sure that this film has an as an international audience because I, what was it? I was I was at Night Vision's film fest and I met like Finnish horror fans and and I was told it's kind of like a neglected marketplace for genre because they sort of get they get lumped in with uh, Europe and, and, and lumped in with uh, Scandinavia. And I just thought like after that experience, it's like this horror film has to find all horror films. yes There cannot be a horror fan that we did not turn over that rock to find them or punk rockers everywhere. So it, to me, it's important to do as much as you can when you have a movie like that to get it to everybody who wants to see it all over the world of all cultures, because I think who loves horror? And just the same thing—the question of like who likes video games. Every single fucking person on earth. Okay. <laughs> ability to see it, they could love it. They could follow the Twitter. There's a crazy punk girl that runs the Twitter. They can find it on Facebook. They can find me at like on Heather Buckley on Facebook. I friend like any person who's part of the, the horror community so we can all talk about horror movies night and day as the, as the sun moves around the earth because of the hours I keep
1: so <laughs> <laughs> no but th- uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and uh, thanks for choosing the film as well
2: alright man thanks guys
1: thank you take it easy so not really too much convincing needed done this week uh, yeah. not to the two of us at least no it was actually really nice
0: to revisit ninth configuration again
1: Yeah, it's not something I go back to any great regularity
0: but when it came up as the film I was quite interested and excited when Heather suggested it So I really liked going back and watching it again
1: So speaking as a first time viewer I could see it entering my rotation
0: Oh, really? It's going, oh, to, it's sure. going to enter the five-disc multi-changer? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: What's in your changer? Remember when they used to ask that at the end of interviews? Uh, yeah, no, I think, it, I think it might. I um, I mean, that was pretty vocal in there, but I thought was, I loved it. Yeah. yeah, it really worked for me in a lot of ways. Something that we didn't touch on in the main episode, like I said, I did a little bit of kind of reading, just trying to understand the background of it, the reception of it, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: From what I can glean from IMDb, it seems as though there's a remake in the works. <laughs> what? Yeah, a remake of the Netflix. A remake of this film of the name configuration. configuration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> oh, no there's not. Yeah, I know. Um so what? there's no from what I could see, there was no names attached to it, but it um it's being directed by a Rodrigo H. Via. Ah, my favourite, yeah. Well yeah. he's done a lot of documentary go stuff. Go on then. Uh-huh. um the only other feature that is on the go is The Last Man, which is an upcoming sci-fi, I believe, film starring Hayden Christensen and Harvey Keitel. So um, <laughs> you I mean am the
0: paper boy from in the mouth of madness.
1: Yes, yes. Oh my it's god! All connected. My world, yeah. um, so I am approaching that one, admittedly, and like I say, I am not precious about remix. I am approaching that one with the requisite level of apprehensiveness. Yeah, I.
0: Oh, I didn't know about that at all. That no, nor is, did I. That is uh, that's unnerving. Um, I wonder if Heather knows about that.
1: We can um, we can hit her up after the episode and ask the question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah wow uh that is that's mind-boggling yeah stirring stuff um but it seems almost unremakeable to me i think that yeah it feels very much of a time i think that trying yeah. to mess with that is um a dangerous game be interesting to see i get the i'm of the
0: opinion that all the the kind of farcical elements and the comedy stuff that's going to get gone that's going to be gone yeah and i think that that's so much of the charm of the thing yeah i feel like it's going to go it'll go too heavy it'll go
1: too dark and it'll be shutter island yeah, that's what I'm concerned about, basically. Yeah. yeah, I think so.
0: But maybe shite. Possibly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what? I was going to be like, I, I don't know. Was his name Via? Uh, yes. Rodrigo Via.
0: Rodrigo, if you if you're listening to this, if you find that come across this through some hashtag search, get in touch, drop us a message, have a chat with us about it.
1: Absolutely. Want, we definitely want to know more. Tell us that it won't be
0: shite. Yeah, that's we, our
1: worry. Yeah, we have some questions, as people often do. Everybody yeah. makes about things that they've got all the time for us. So yeah, let's turn our attention though to the feedback. This week, <laughs> there is qu- there was quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Um, there really was. Um, We've whittled this down. I say we have done very very little whittling. Yeah. Um, I must admit. Yeah. So it was me that uh, I compiled the feedback this week. Um, apologies in advance if we missed something out. There was a lot of stuff here. Yep. So I did my best to try and include as much of a spread of the comments as we could. It's worth mentioning that we are
0: coming round more to the idea of moving the feedback section into the mini-sode. Yeah. as so f- just try to find the right time to do that. So we will make more time to include people's comments in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that we're basically kind of realising that if we have a conversation of the length of the one that we had tonight, say, that uh, the episodes start met- might start feeling a little bit kind of bloated if we have a decent sized feedback at the end. Whereas I think that the Minnesots are at the moment feeling a little bit short. So I think yeah. they kind of, I think that it might make sense to do that. But again, of course, get in touch if that's something that offends you horribly. <laughs> um, I, imagine, I don't like change. I can't imagine anyone feeling that passionate about it, but you never know. Uh, so yeah, let's take a look at some things. So I want to cycle back uh, to well, episode zero actually, or minisode zero. Fucking hell! Uh, because. Um, Stevie, Stevie Reeve, uh, film uh, film fan Stevie on Twitter. No one likes films more than Stevie Reeve. Uh, yeah, he's some guy. I've never seen anyone consume films like Stevie. He is Reeve. a
0: proper cinephile.
1: So it's uh, with uh, no small amount of honour that, that he's, turned his, he's turned his attention to our podcast. He just said I might be late to the party. Uh, just listen to episode zero of Strong Violent PC. If you don't follow them, please do. Also follow Andy Makes Stuff on Watch Fair as Mitch, the host of the
0: podcast. Yeah, and that's, that's a, a good message to kind of put out to everyone there. You can also follow us. Yeah, you if, can follow our the ones if, if you like. If that's the kind of thing you, you're into. <laughs> yeah. Um, so,
1: have you got anything? Let's try and move chronologically forward if
0: we okay, can. Let me just try to get my, st- my shit in order here. I guess up next then, Leviathan. Oh, feels like forever ago. Yeah, five episodes ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah, half a half a show ago. Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, one take Dunan at Johnny Organ getting in touch to say, "Just watched Leviathan last night with the misses." thanks for the recommendation lads really enjoyed it had never even heard of it before SVPC that's obviously the strong I guess strong violent podcast that's
1: a good that's a good abbreviation yeah
0: because yeah. yeah, the one we had in mind is a little too close to the word slaves
1: yeah I think we should bend that and just use that SVPC yeah, thanks for
0: that uh, Johnny we will take that on board
1: yeah greatly appreciate for sure <laughs> so I don't have um, too much more kind of prior to extra but I have got a shitload about extra I
0: have an absolute so it fucked on about extra as well. So, I think everything from this point on is about extra.
1: Uh yeah, same. Uh so this episode, I mean, um we got a lot of responses to it, <laughs> uh positive and negative, and uh thanks a lot to everyone for taking the time. But I was wouldn't I necessarily say it was surprised, but it was nice to see um mm-hmm. such a kind of um an outpouring of responses. I would say ranging from kind of mediocre to positive. For the
0: record, right. I introduced a friend of mine to it on uh Friday night and they fucking hated it. Really? Yep, I'm not gonna name names. Okay but they know who they are and they did not enjoy it in fact they fell asleep for a good half an hour
1: Oh well, I mean if you, if you wait like if you miss any half hour of extra when you wake yeah, up, it's not makes, gonna make any fucking sense. It
0: it's not even like it's like not even watching the same film.
1: Exactly. Um so Dennis Extra Atherton was <laughs> as you can imagine, pretty enthused about the fact that we'd um, that we'd gone in for extra this week with yeah. Rob. A torrent of tweets from Dennis Extra Atherton. Yeah. Um and uh, like but thanks very much for uh, getting in touch and also just for kind of uh sharing your experiences and also just for your kind words about the episodes. Yep. I did say hearing you guys talk about my favourite film with love is My Week, Rob was the uh the perfect guest oh um which is nice yeah and um also you offered a five word review an extraordinary excursion into exaggeration all with x's of course
0: ah see what he's done there. that's that's very clever yeah uh, and yeah,
1: but... um staying with five word reviews uh-huh. i want to um just uh pivot to uh, laura yeah on okay. twitter getting in touch saying five word review for extra Harry Bromley Davenport was high. I would say that's pretty accurate. Uh, not a million miles off the mark, yeah, I would say. No. Was... Even
0: when you see interviews of Harry now, it might be the case that he's high.
1: So, Laura did actually um, uh, get in touch with a little bit of a longer comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, uh, I don't know how to say this, but on Twitter it's at B-E-Y-N-O-N-L-V. Right, okay. Uh, B-E-Y-N-O-N-L-V. uh said, liking this, always had a soft spot for extra. The second site blue is amazing. Harry BD is a star, but I knew that. Okay, cool. Staying with X-Row, um... Of course. A, we had a couple of comments from a Haley Alice Roberts. That's at Welsh Demoness on Twitter. Uh-huh. First off, we had, I bloody love extra." It's a warped nightmare of ultra weird proportions meshed with British kitchen sink style drama. Incredibly visceral, gross-out special effects. I really like the score. Okay, there you Other go. Set, Whoa, like. controversial. Um, yeah. For the most part, it's pretty inexplicable, but that adds to the overall charm. Cool. Which I think is fair enough. I think that ties in with a lot of where we landed on it. But also, um, she did turn her attentions to the Director's Cup. Yeah. And the new version. and she did Which say. Rob-
0: uh, also touched on and uh, advised
1: us to avoid yeah and um, but she's, she said so um, I felt that the new restoration impacted the overall charm I prefer the greeniness of the original it adds to the film's mystique the practical effects are astonishing and one of my favourite elements of it all so that's kind of interesting I think uh, so thanks uh, very much to everyone that got in touch um, on that one do you have any more or is that I've um... got
0: a few things here oh, fire away, got quite, fire a away. A, quite a lot here Chelsea Sato got in touch saying you and Rob my two favourite people in the world I gotta get on this now <laughs> I don't know if that's in relation to myself or you. It's you, I would say. And as a result, I feel very attacked. Feel attacked. Feel left <laughs> out. Well, I mean, you're one of my favourite people in the ah, world. Ah, thanks, Mitch. man. Uh, thanks for getting in touch, Chelsea. That's uh, at Avenge Uh We had uh, Dave Cooper at Deluxe underscore Man.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> excellent.
0: <laughs> getting in touch uh, again on extra, saying thanks for convincing me to want to watch this. I can see you guys help drain my wallet.
1: I've had a couple of these. Yeah, had a couple yeah, of these. Assume, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and again. Lovely that people are actually hunting these things down and so cool. sinking their own money into actually buying them. Yeah, it's awesome. Yep. Now yeah. the last thing I've got is from Gravely Unusual magazine. Oh, cool, uh, okay. At Gravely Unusual. Hello. Saying, love this film, the score specifically, as well as the buffing scene. Nasty with four Y's.
1: It is nasty, I would say. Nasty. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd agree with that. And I have one more, but it's um it's turning away from extra and actually yeah. um turn our attentions towards this week's selection. Mm. Uh, so we had Barry Delgarno, or old pal, getting in touch on Facebook saying, oh, this should be interesting. Well, uh, <laughs> I hope it was. Um, and also saying, uh, while we're on the subject uh, of William Peter Blatty, hopefully someone will at some point do The Exorcist 3. which I, would I say don't think
0: there's anyone more qualified than Heather to come back on and discuss The Exorcist 3.
1: That's very true, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I want to bring something up really quickly. Uh, just because, right at the very last minute, absolute eleventh-hour entry from uh, Ricky Moonga. Right. Uh, best known for previously introducing us to the film Big. Oh, Tech Big Zombie, Zombie. which hey, I've okay. still yet to
0: see. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I haven't hunted it down yet. I'm just going to write it on my hand.
1: Yeah, I'm. Um, uh, but he did just get in touch again, ref the ch- uh, selection of the ninth configuration, saying, "I love this film. This film is in-depth viewing and should be seen by all with multiple L's." Cool. Going down yeah. the
0: same road as, as that.
1: Yeah, like a, just like um, a liberal approach to consonant distribution. Yeah, spread them out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's your love for this week, but um, thank you very much to everyone for getting in touch again. Yeah, um, madness. Yeah, uh, that's Absolute hefty. madness. Yeah. So like I say, I think that uh, we are... Kind of drifting towards the idea of migrating the feedback into the mini-sodes. Yeah, uh, I think I think we're going to. Yeah, I think that's yeah. where it is.
0: It's going to take us a wee while to balance it out and, and, and actually do it. Give us a couple of episodes, but we will certainly do it. Yeah, I think we Give we're... you more bang for your buck in a mini-sode and uh, a bit of a quicker reprieve from the full, <laughs> the full episodes.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, but like I say, I mean, so if you get in touch and it feels like we're not reading something out in the right week or something, we will get to it. It's just a case of we're going to have to do a kind of migration of that. And that, yeah, that might take a week or two. So By no
0: means stop sending us stuff. Please keep sending us stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. On a related note, the various ways you can do that uh, mm. you can get in touch on Facebook and Instagram at Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. And you can email Strong Language Scenes at gmail.com. Hashtag SVPC. <laughs> Hashtag SVPC. <laughs>
0: And if you're wondering where you can get us... You know what, I was. Yeah, I bet you were, I bet you were. You can get us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, Mm -hmm. Google Podcasts app, and the mighty Spotify. Yeah, you can get us at all of those places. Basically anywhere you get your pods.
1: Yeah. Casting our net far and wide these days. That's it. So a big thank you to Heather Buckley, the producer of Gem Witzler's yep. The Ranger.
0: Massive thanks, Heather. Looking forward to catching up in
1: August at Fright Fest. Yeah, and a lot good, just, just a great conversation as well. Superb. A lot of time. I had a lot of fun talking about the ninth configuration tonight. And thank you, of course, uh, to yourselves for listening as well.
0: well. Thank you, Mitch. Well,
1: thanks, man. Thank you too, while we're liberally throwing around thanks. <laughs> and of course, as always, thank you to uh, our Lord and Saviour, David Strathairn. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back on Monday and Strathairn 1 Strathairn we trust and Strathairn I trust man. honestly what would David Strathairn do <laughs> yeah, <it's> like- <laughs> My, my, my first time that I realised that I loved David Strathairn was his appearance in uh, The Uninvited right okay which I I'm um, under no impression that The Uninvited is a particularly good film you know the uh, the remake of The Tale of Two Sisters with um, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Banks and uh, Emily Browning yes yeah and I remember thinking I was like yeah oh, that guy's kind of subtle this young upstart man has a bright and illustrious <laughs> career ahead of him and then I realised that obviously <laughs> he'd been in film for about 30 years yeah so anyway in conclusion yeah. fucking love David Strathairn <laughs> uh, moving swiftly on we are back um Monday morning at 8 a.m. GMT, where we announce the guest in film for next week. Yes, indeed. And what a cracker it shall be. Oh, uh, yeah, I already know. Yeah, it's all decided. We're, we're well ahead of the game this time. Yeah, that's it. yeah But in the meantime, thanks for joining us, and don't forget that it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Vengland Scenes Theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes and Podbean.